cover tonight. Okay, so here's the deal. If, you, if you'll work hard with me tonight, we'll get a lot more practical with all of this on, on Tuesday and Wednesday night, okay? But tonight, uh, we're going to work. It's early in the week, and uh, so let's, let's do work uh, together. Um, you know, the, for those of you that are from out of town and you're coming to the morning sessions, you know, there's things that we're covering there uh, in great detail. Uh, part of what we try to do in the evenings is for all of the, the folks that are a part of this church, we want you also to understand a lot of the issues that we're talking about there, knowing that uh, you've got to work and uh, you've got responsibilities that you need to take care of. And so all, all of that's, you know, all, all of that's good. I hope that the things that I'm saying tonight might drive you to listen to what is taking place in those morning sessions. Uh, you know, find some time uh, this week, maybe at the end of the week or next week, sometime while all of this is fresh. I, I would encourage you to get to those morning sessions and get uh, in great detail. Now, you might want to get a dictionary next to you. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I thought, you know, after hearing those guys today, I thought, wow, man, I might need to change my introduction tonight so I can sound smart. But, uh, but not knowing, I, I feel a delicacy in articulating lest I should deviate from the nebular conception of the truth. <laughs> Break it down. Okay, so now they, they, they brought in the remedial guy uh, to, to be able to just hopefully walk through uh, a lot of important ground tonight. Uh, some of you have maybe been, uh, you know, through some of this ground. Maybe the packaging of it might be different tonight. I, I hope that we'll all... Maybe listen with some fresh ears. I, I, I guess, you know, tonight, if I were uh, thinking about how you might want to get to the place where you could cover a lot of ground in this whole issue in one segment, that's kind of what we're doing tonight, okay? So I, I hope that uh, all of this will make sense, but again, you will have to work Maybe just a little harder than you, you worked last night. Um, now, uh, because I spent a lot of years here, and those of you that were here back in, in that era, we, uh, we took 76 weeks of Sunday mornings to uh, go through Revelation chapter 2 and 3, taking the... We really did. Uh, <laughs> And, and all of you that were here then, say amen. amen. Woo! Hallelujah to you. Weren't you glad when that was over? <laughs> but you know what? what? What was happening is I, uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about this tomorrow night. When I became the pastor of this church, I used the King James Bible, but was no more uh, aware of any issues on that. In fact, I read through the whole New International Version back in those days 
never taught out of anything other than the King James. But uh, so, man, this, this was a turning point for our church when we did this Revelation 2 and 3 thing. Uh, and somehow or another, with something that long and dragged out, for most of the folks back in those days, it was kind of like a soap opera, you know? The organ would play at the end, like, okay, what happens next? And, uh, and, and so it was a significant period of time, and I wish to my soul tonight that all of us really understood what was taking place in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and so this is where we'll pick up in our, our notes. The significance of the, the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches in Asia Minor uh, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. I'll just, I'll just say this, if you've never heard this teaching, uh, Greg Axe has read a or written a book that is available here, I'm not exactly sure, oh, they're out, out there, has written a book on the subject. I would encourage you to get the book, but for you to really understand where we're going tonight, I've just got to mention these seven letters. These letters that Jesus wrote were addressing real issues that were really taking place in those real churches in Asia Minor in about 90 to 95 A.D. or so. However, when you take those letters and place them into the context of the book of Revelation, it becomes very apparent that those seven letters are representative of seven periods of church history where the book of Acts and the epistles leave off in terms of history, and they bring us all the way up to the rapture of the church, which coincidentally enough is found in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, right after the seventh letter to the seven churches. Now, tonight, we're going to be talking about the greatest period of church history. The, in this letter that was written to the Philadelphians, what we said back in those old days was, we want to be a new Philadelphian church in the Laodicean age. And you know what, man? I, you guys are well on your way. And, uh, I, man, I, I hope you'll keep that thing out in front of you. What God did in that period of time was unbelievably significant. I can't say enough about what was happening during that period of time in church history. Um, but, you know, usually when we're talking about that period, we're, we're talking about all of those glorious, wonderful things that were taking place. But obviously, if all of those things were taking place in God's economy, what do you think might have been happening behind the scenes? The devil, just because everything was happening in such a tremendous fashion... It wasn't like he said, oh, well, I'll be doggone. I guess I lost. Man, he didn't roll over. He was at work. And so, strangely enough tonight, as we talk about the greatest period in church history, we're not really going to talk about all those wonderful things. We're going to be talking about what the devil was doing during that period of time 
to make sure that he could counter and counterfeit that book that was causing all of these wonderful things to happen. Okay, listen, y'all. Somehow, we got to where we are tonight in Christianity. And if you want to know where we are, um, let's see, what words could we use to describe poor, wretched, miserable, blind, naked, void of truth. Um, It's just crazy, but we got here somehow, coming out of that Philadelphian church period, and again, that's what we want to talk about tonight. Okay, so during the Philadelphian period, first of all, we see the devil working through the rise of false philosophies. Okay, now again, I know that sounds all heady and all that... Just, just hang with me. It's not going to be that, that crazy, okay? But as we talk about the false philosophies that were beginning to come to the surface during the Philadelphian period, there were really four of them that uh, I think were very significant in terms of bringing us to where we are tonight. Now, I, I certainly won't be able to exhaust those, but... Uh, if we were really going to e- exhaust them, we would, uh, man, we, we could take a semester in a college course to talk about these things. So I'm just going to give you the, the highlights. And, and I, again, I, it's all you're going to need to be able to really understand how the devil changed the landscape of Christianity and how he changed the landscape of the world. Okay, so the first of these false philosophy actually has two prongs, okay? It's what's referred to historically as modernism and higher criticism. Modernism and higher criticism. And and what modernism is, it's basically a, a system of thought that replaces God's wisdom that is revealed in his word for faith in man's wisdom. And so obviously, if man's wisdom has replaced God's wisdom, then you can guarantee tea, out goes heaven, out goes hell, out goes sin, out goes the need for salvation. Okay, that's modernism. It's not hard to understand, is it? Okay, and then next is this thing of higher criticism. And what higher criticism is, is simply taking modernism and applying it to the Bible. I put it this way in your notes. It is applying man's wisdom to critique the Bible, which basically means you use your quote-unquote intelligence to try to sound smart so that you can destroy people's faith in God and in His Word. And for the most part, modernism and higher criticism began in Germany by liberal theologians, probably the guy that gets the credit for popularizing it, we would say blame, is a man by the name of Julius Wilhelsen. 
Julius Wellhausen. And what Wellhausen and many others did was they, they took their Christian beliefs, listen, they took their Christian beliefs minus the authority of the Bible, minus the reality of heaven and hell, and they brought that into the higher institutions of learning in Europe. And in and, and just a relatively short period of time after that, it got into those institutions of higher learning in our own country. Okay, and so what began to happen, listen now, what began to happen is young men went off to be trained for ministry in these institutions of higher learning rather than their local church, and their faith got undermined by their liberal apostate professor. And then those young graduates with degrees after their names went out to turn Bible-believing churches into liberal apostate churches. Okay, that was all of what was happening through modernism and higher criticism. And again, the landscape, all these wonderful things are happening, but the landscape is beginning to change. And then at virtually the same period of time, another false philosophy was also rocking the world of Christianity, and that was Darwinism, which of course is what provides for us the theory of evolution. Okay, so everybody still tracking? All right, awesome. Okay, so it was kind of unfolding like this, y'all. More and more people were beginning to buy into this modernistic mindset, and since, since they couldn't trust the biblical account of creation in the book of Genesis anymore, the philosophical world didn't really have an answer to the origin of man. Where'd we come from then if it wasn't God? And so, of course, the devil was very happy to oblige in answering the question, and he did so through a pawn. And anybody know his name? Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin is an English naturalist, one who studies nature, and he developed a philosophy that supposedly provided the answer for the origin of man in uh, of what was called the survival of the fittest. Okay, and this was published in Darwin's The Origin of the Species in 1859. Check it out. Those of you that are from other places may not know this. This church that we're in tonight began in 1858. <laughs> when this church began, there wasn't any such thing as evolution <laughs> going on. But, oh, buddy, it's getting ready because that twerp was born a year after this church was, was founded. And so now, liberalism... And modernism had exactly what it needed to critique the Bible and undermine people's faith in the Word of God and the God of the Word with what they now called scientific evidence. 
which is really nothing more than a lie in what Paul called in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20, oppositions of science falsely so-called. Amen? And so that was Darwinism. Okay, and then next, the next false philosophy is Freudianism, which of course is psychology. Okay, and in the same way, that Darwinism provided the modernistic minds an explanation of man's origin, Freudianism provided modernistic minds the solution to man's problems. Because you see, once God doesn't have the answer for your problems, where do you go now? And so the devil had to find a way to answer how do we help people with their problems, not the least of which is Guilt. Okay. And of course, this philosophical approach is what was developed by an Austrian physician named Sigmund Freud, born in 1856, two years before this church was, was planted. And, and essentially, what Freud said is that the people's actions are really the result of unconscious drives that originated in their childhood, and therefore, people can't be held responsible for their deeds. So, you don't need to be guilty. It's not your fault. He said that sexual instinct is the driving force behind all human action. And so, can you see what's happening? The devil is removing God from society through modernism and higher criticism. He's providing man a a, a quote-unquote scientific explanation about the origin of man through Darwinism. And at the same time, he's providing man a way to remove his guilt with an alternative way of dealing with his problems rather than looking in this book at what God says. And that is Freudianism. Okay, and then the next one, which is really the natural result of the other three philosophies, is what is called humanism. Okay, and you guys feel like you're in college? (laughs) Okay, humanism is a philosophical statement that says that the end of man, of all being, is the happiness of man. That's what it's all about, y'all. It's all about you. Laodicea, you see where this is going? Okay, so in time, in the Laodicean period, man's happiness began to be equated with sensual experience, which led to another one that we're not really going to get into, but the sensual experience led to what is called existentialism. Okay, and and let me just throw this in for good measure. Okay, so if the happiness of man is the end result in the early days, like in the 20s and 30s, man's happiness was equated with power. 
and a guy by Adolf, by the name of Adolf Hitler picked up on that thing. And in time, it led to the sexual revolution of the 50s and 60s that brought, and a lot of you guys were alive at that time. Now, I wasn't. <laughs> okay. But, but uh, listen, do you understand? We got where we are somehow, y'all. <laughs> okay, and, and so this is just a, a, a broad brushstroke to help us really understand how we got to where we are. But this, listen, there was something else that the devil wanted to make sure that he did during this period of time. This is what I'm calling in your notes the confidence breaker in the authority of the King James Bible. The confidence breaker in the authority of the King James Bible. Again, I, I, I wish we had time to explain all of you know, what Revelation 3, 7 through 13 actually means in terms of the outline of, of church history. But do understand this. In the Philadelphian period, according to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8, this period of time was characterized by the open door. This was the church of the open door, but here's what I want to make sure that you, you get. If, if I lost you on all of that other stuff, and I think you're still here, but if I did, just make sure that you get this, that there was a particular something that happened in the Philadelphian church period that opened the door. It wasn't random. And what that something was, check it out in history, what that something was, was the King James Bible getting into the hands of the people. King James I of England authorized that the Bible be translated into English, and the result of that work that would be the standard Bible that would be read in the churches and that it would be the standard Bible that would be preached from in the churches. Okay, so the King James thing is beginning to happen. Okay, now listen. In 1450, 150 or 60 years previous, the printing press was invented. It was a major thing. If that book's going to get distributed, y'all, it ain't going to happen the way that it had been happening for several thousand years, okay? And, but with the invention of the printing press and then the completion of this masterful translation in 1611, English-speaking people, for the first time in their lives, y'all, had access to the Bible. And having it. They didn't have it, man. It wasn't in their hands. But once it got in their hands and they read it, they fell in love with it. And they began to be burdened for others all over the world to have the same access to the Word of God that they had. 
If you want to understand why the Philadelphian church period just randomly was called Philadelphia, which means brotherly love, it was because those people got the King James Bible in their hand and for love for their fellow man took this book to the ends of the earth to reach them with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen, y'all. For a period of 270 years, when people held the King James Bible in their hands and read from it, there wasn't any doubt in their mind what it was. They thoroughly, from head to toe, believed that they were holding the very word and words of God, and they believed that they were hearing from God himself through the pages of this book. And that confidence in the word of God, and that attitude toward the word of God, and that reverence for the word of God caused God to give to them, as Revelation 3 and verse 7 said, the key of David that opened the door to the world in that Philadelphian church period. And something that you want to make sure that you understand is just as the Philadelphian period is characterized as the church of the open door, the Laodicean period is characterized as the church of the closed door. And just as surely as there was a particular something that opened the door in the Philadelphian period, there was a particular something that closed the door as we came into the Laodicean period that, according to Revelation chapter 3, causes Jesus in this period of time to be on the outside of his church knocking seeing if there might be some idiot that wouldn't think he was so smart that he could hear everything that was being said out there and might be able to hear through all of the cacophony Picked up that word from the morning sessions. <laughs> Could actually hear Jesus knocking on that door and go and open it. Okay, okay, I, I want you to think with me now. If it was the King James Bible getting into the hands of the common man and their attitude toward it, that opened the door, what do you think might have closed it? Okay, obviously it would be the Bible taken out of the hands of the common man and something happening to their attitude toward the Bible that they held in their hands. And I would submit to you, my brothers and sisters, that that is exactly what happened, and that that's exactly where we are today in a, a new kind of dark ages. Do you know the dark ages that 
period from 500 to 1500. The, the, it's we, we learned it in school, the Dark Ages. They want to call it the Middle Ages because they don't want to equate it with darkness. But listen, the reason it was dark is because the Bible, which is the light of God, that any time that it makes its way into somewhere, it brings light. Okay, the, the Bible's taken out of the hands of the common man. This is represented in the letters to Thyatira and Sardis. But what was happening during that period of time is the Bible, listen, the Bible was physically taken out of the hands of the common man by the Roman Catholic Church through persecution and coming out of the Philadelphian church period and moving into Laodicea. Listen, the Bible was not physically taken out, but practically taken out of the hands of the common man by the Jesuits, the Roman Catholic bigwigs that made their way into the institutions of higher learning. And now the Bible was practically taken out of the hands of the common man, not through persecution, but through education. And, and when I say that it was practically taken out, make sure you understand that I'm talking about in a, for all practical purposes, not like almost. No, for all practical purposes, the Bible in the period of time where we are now living, and I'll get into this in a little more tomorrow night, it has been taken out of the hands of the common man through education. In, in other words, people may physically have a book in their hand that they call the Bible, but it has been stripped of its power in the common man's life as the result of what has been happening for the last 150 years or so. Okay, and I want to I take the remainder of our time to, to show you what I mean, to show you how it really happened. Okay, there's a, there's a key verse that you, you need to to make sure that you understand that I, I, I believe that is so important to understanding this Philadelphian period. The, the verse is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. And what this verse tells us, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, what it tells us is that, are you listening? That there is something crazy, powerful, about God's people receiving and believing that the Bible that they have in their hand is not the words of men, but that it is the very word and words of God. The, the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 says that when we bring that belief and when we bring that attitude to the word of god listen that's when the power of this book is completely unleashed and effectually works in our lives but you gotta receive it and you gotta believe it <laughs> And listen, if you want to understand one of the key reasons that God was able to do all of the 
powerful and effectual things that he was able to do in the Philadelphian church period, it was because of the principle of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. It was the fact that our brothers and sisters during that period of time, y'all, had an unquestionable belief that the particular Bible they held in their hands, and that Bible was a... You didn't really bring the gusto I thought that you would bring with that. <laughs> they had a King James Bible, and they believed that what they were holding in their hands was the very word and words of God. And the devil knew... <laughs> That as long as the people had that kind of attitude toward and belief in the Bible, he knew he wasn't going to be able to stop its transforming effectiveness in the lives of the people. But how in the world was he going to be able to keep people that had the Bible in their hands and loved it? How was he going to get them out of that 1 Thessalonians 2.13 kind of belief that that book that they held in their hands wasn't just the words of men, but the very words of God? Because again, I, I, I mentioned this already, but the thing that opened the door in the Philadelphian church period was the belief that our brothers and sisters had in the word of God and their ensuing love for it. And the devil knew that if he was ever going to be able to close that door, he was going to have to do something to come against the belief and the conviction that the common people had in the word of God. And again, how in the world would he ever be able to pull off something of that scope and of that magnitude? And so you know what he did? He borrowed from his own playbook, from what he used with Eve back in the garden. Now, obviously, in the garden, to get the woman, and hence the man, to do the very thing, the one thing, the only thing that he told him not to do, don't eat from the tree. Okay, if he's going to get them to do that... He's going to have to be very subtle, very crafty. He's going to have to do something to get Eve taken the standing eight count. Get her bell rung. Get her confused, man. But, but again, how in the world is he going to get her, pull that off? And of course, God reveals exactly how he did that in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And all you really need to know about what happened is wrapped up in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, where God says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And realize this, just like Paul came to the Thessalonians before the New Testament portion of our Bible had even been penned, and just like we saw a minute ago in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, when he spoke the word of God to them, they recognized it to be not simply the words of men, but what it is in truth, 
the words of God, okay? So God makes very clear from what he revealed to us in Genesis chapter 2 and, and, and chapter 3, listen now, that God used Adam to speak his very words to the woman concerning the infamous tree from which they were forbidden to eat. And it's very apparent from what the woman says to the serpent or Satan in, in verses 2 and 3 that just like it was when Paul spoke the word of God to the Thessalonians that when Adam spoke to her the word of God concerning the tree that she too received them and believed them. Are you tracking with that? Okay, not as the words of men. In this case, she wasn't receiving it as the word of man. <laughs> there was only one. Okay. She wasn't receiving it as the words of man, but as it is in truth, the words of God. Okay, and as we're all fully aware, she ends up in, in, in just a, a few minute conversation losing her trust in the words that God had spoken to her from Adam, and she ends up eating from the one and only forbidden tree, actually thinking that she was doing something good or to her benefit. And, and you know what? how God says it happened? Verse 1, it happened because Satan simply got her to question what God said. And in other words, got her to question the word of God that she had received by inspiration of Adam. God breathed his words through Adam to her. Listen, she woke up that morning with a simple trust that she had in her possession the very words of God. But by nightfall, Satan had gotten her to believe that what Adam had spoken to her may have actually been only the words of man. And listen, that was all the latitude that he needed to get her to eat the forbidden fruit, and as a result, thrust the entire human race that would come from her loins and, of course, from Adam's into the sin that would damn the souls of billions of people throughout history. And don't miss this little novel piece in this whole debacle. The first recorded words of Satan in the Bible come in the form of a question, and specifically a question designed to get humans to doubt the authority and the reliability concerning the word and words of God. That's how it happened. And isn't it interesting that 4,000 years removed from that, the Apostle Paul, speaking the Word of God under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, would ultimately be written to the Corinthians that for those of us, 
verse 2 says, that have been espoused to the Lord Jesus Christ as our one, our one husband, which is to say all of us that are in a relationship with the God of the universe through the salvation found in Christ, he says to us in verse 3, but I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And, and this is obviously God's commentary on what we just looked at in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, where, where through his subtlety, Satan was able to take the simplicity of Eve's confidence and trust in the Word of God and so corrupt her mind or her thinking about it that without her even knowing what was happening, unravel God's authoritative voice in her life by destroying her trust and her reliability that she actually had the word of God for her life. And listen, y'all, by the late 1800s, through the infiltration of the Jesuits in the institutions of higher learning, Paul's fear in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13 came to pass in England, and within just a couple of decades, it was widespread in America as well. Because you see, just like Eve, on any previous day before Genesis 3, listen, if you would have walked up to that woman, if you would have walked up to Eve and asked her if she believed that she had the very words of God for her life, I guarantee you she would have told you that there was no doubt about that in her mind. And I likewise guarantee you that if in the height of the Philadelphian church period, if you would have gone up to any any born-again believer in England or America and asked them if they believed that the Bible that they held in their hands was actually the inspired, infallible, and inerrant Word of God, I guarantee you that there wouldn't have been any doubt whatsoever about that in their mind. And though those of us in the 21st century, you have gotten so smart and so educated that we think that that kind of belief in the Bible is simplistic. The word that God uses isn't simplistic. It's simplicity. <laughs> he keeps it simple, y'all. Okay, here's the way it happened, y'all. Okay, from, from what we glean from the book in our Bible that provides for us the foundation of church history, and the book that provides that for us is the book of Acts. We get everything that we need to know about where history's going. We get all of our definitions about places and about people, priests, and councils, and Antioch, and Alexandria, and Rome, 
just like we did last night, let our approach be biblical. Just go to the Bible and the book that provides the foundation and gives us the definitions to understand church history is in that book. Okay, so we got that. And what we glean from chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Revelation in our Lord's letters to the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, what those do is they provide for us the structure of church history. And as we take the book of Acts and as we take these seven letters that we don't have time to get into, and I'm just cutting to the chase of it, what you begin to see is there are two lines of quote-unquote believers that begin to emerge. Okay, A true line of believers that you trace back to Antioch where they were first called Christians, okay? There is also a line of false believers who trace their religious heritage back through Rome, back to Alexandria, Egypt, which is another key place in understanding the history of this. But listen now, all we need to understand is that just like there were two lines of believers emerging, there were also two lines of Bibles that were emerging. Two lines of manuscripts from which all of the English Bibles have been translated from, or the Bible in any other language has been translated from. Okay, A line of manuscripts, listen, that you trace back to Antioch, but there's also another line that you trace back through Rome, back to Alexandria, Egypt. And this is the way that it shook out. Okay, God begins to work in the church at Antioch. And in the book of Acts, the book that gives us the foundation of church history, the church in Antioch is the model church. Okay, in the last 50 years or so, uh, the last almost 40 years that I've been in, in, in the ministry. I, I've heard this a zillion times. Well, you know what, brother, what we need to do is we need to just get back to the book of Acts because that's when it was happening, man. Okay, but what most, and I would agree with that, but m what most of them want to do is they want to go too far back in the book of Acts. <laughs> they they want to go back to Acts chapter 2 when it was a Jewish church getting its instruction from Peter, the apostle to the Jews, preaching the kingdom of heaven message that was promised to the Jews. And it was a church that was sitting on their fat rear ends like people in Laodicea, sitting in Jerusalem, waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to return to set up his kingdom, again, a kingdom that has been promised to the Jews, and it's even called in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, the kingdom of Israel, if anybody was wanting to notice. And after the Jewish leaders were assembled in Acts chapter 7 to listen to God's final offer of the kingdom through repentance that Stephen was re preaching about, they chose not only to reject the offer, but they chose to martyr the one that was actually giving them the message. And what you find as a result of that in the book of Acts is God moves out of Jerusalem 
And that being his headquarters, and he moves his headquarters to Antioch. And we find in Acts chapter 13 a team of prophets and teachers which would become the the completion of the New Testament pastors and teachers. And listen, man, they are preaching and teaching. Do we have Acts 13.1? They were preaching and teaching the Word of God. And as they did, y'all, what verse 2 says is that they not only ministered to the people in the congregation. Do you know what it says? They ministered to the Lord when they were preaching that book, man. And you see, that's what happens when we preach the Word and words of God. We not only minister to people and not only bless people, we minister to the Lord and bless the Lord. That's what was happening in Antioch, the model church. And as they took the Lord's Word serious enough to proclaim it and as they took the lord's work serious enough to approach it with fasting that's how much they wanted to reach the world with the message that had changed their life the spirit of god began to work in that local church in antioch and they recognized that god wanted them to export what was going on in that church all over the world And with the Spirit's leading and with His authority and the authority of that local church, they laid hands on Barnabas and Saul as a symbol of transferring the authority to them and sent them out to reach cities and regions and in time even countries. Sent them out to win people to Christ, to form them into local churches, to raise up leaders in those churches, to do the same thing that the church in Antioch was doing. And after they did that in that city, region or country, whatever, Barnabas and Saul, who, of course, became Paul, they would go do that in another city, another region, another country. And as churches were planted and pastors being put in place to feed and to lead and to plead, Paul began to write letters or epistles to these churches and leaders. Many of that were written, many of these letters written under the divine inspiration of the Spirit of God Himself. And they were letters that he intended and designed to be a part of the 27 books that comprise what we call the New Testament portion of our Bible. And as these obvious God-given words of inspiration were written in these letters to these local churches, what would happen is believers in those churches would make copies and people from other cities and regions and countries would make copies and would in turn share them with people in other places. Okay, and this, this grassroots line of manuscripts, if you will, came to be called the Textus Receptus. Okay, which are two, don't, don't let that throw you, but you do need to know it. Which are two Latin words that simply mean received text. The received text text. 
And if you want to understand what the received text is, li listen. What it really means is that there, these were the manuscripts that Bible-believing Christians and churches recognized as the very text God intended to comprise the New Testament and was thereby received, just like they did in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, and it was received by the priesthood of the believers that we call the body of Christ. And of course... They didn't have staples and office macs in those days where they could just go down and, you know, buy an affordable ream of paper, put it on the copy machine. Okay, all they had to use was a, and what was available to them, which was a paper that was called papyrus, which was basically the equivalent of what we would just call some very thin newspaper print, Okay. But, but again, as, as the portions of the New Testament began to be written on papyrus and began to circulate, in time, this is what is known in history, even by those that don't hold our position, as the received text. It was the text, y'all, that the body of Christ recognized as Scripture and made copies so that other people could have it, okay, and, and, and it all began with the church planting movement that the Spirit of God generated out of his new headquarters in Antioch. Okay, but again, there's another place that we need to have on our radar as we try to understand this whole equation, and that place was Alexandria, Egypt. And the reason that this place is so significant is because there was a famous school of higher learning that was there. This school predated the time of Christ. This school is known, if you look it up, just Google it, man, Alexandria, Egypt. They, I guarantee you they're going to talk about the incredible library that was there and Again, it was the largest library in the world at that time, but it was a school, listen, that was steeped, because it predated the time of Christ. It was a school that was steeped in propagating that Greek philosophical mindset. But what is crazy is somehow, without anybody in history telling us how it actually happened, because it didn't, Somehow, by the middle of the second century, the school somehow became equated with Christianity. And, and what you begin to find is what they were actually doing in this school is they were trying to indoctrinate the students with a, a new philosophical mindset, which was designed to take Greek philosophy and try to blend it with the teachings of Christ to come up with a, a, a new type of philosophy, okay? And, and by around 200 A.D., a, a man who would become very famous in the history of the church becomes president or the headmaster of this Egyptian Christian university, and it's a man by the name of Adamantius Origen. 
And the reason that he's going to become so famous and so significant in church history is because he is known in church history as the first textual critic. Okay? And, and okay, now listen. Though Bible-believing Christians and churches already recognized and received what they knew the Spirit of God who lived in them was and was not given by inspiration, they, they already recognized, yes, this is given by inspiration of God. They already recognized that. And they were very dutifully and joyfully making copies of it for themselves and for others. But old Adamantius origin in his, did I mention, Egyptian university that tried to parade itself as Christian. What he does is he goes to work to try to tell all of us poor, inferior, common people who don't know any better, he's going to be the one who's going to tell us what should be and should not be in our New Testament. And because of the prestigious place he had in this school of higher learning with this library that was world-renowned, Somehow this brainiac gets held up in church history as some great thing, and I'll let you know what kind of great thing he was for the cause of Christ and the Bible by giving you a sample of what he believed. He believed that Jesus was a created being. He would have been a great Jehovah's Witness. So, of course, he didn't believe that Jesus was equal with God, which means he didn't believe in the Trinity. He believed in baptismal regeneration. So, of course, he, he, he believed that the way a person is saved is by being baptized in water. He didn't believe in interpreting the Bible literally, but used the allegorical method of interpretation, which is basically make it say whatever you want to say. And he believed that when it was all said and done... Jesus and the devil were going to kiss and make up. And we were all going to just live happily ever after. Okay, now listen. This is the guy who's going to tell us what is and what isn't the Word of God. And so, he gets the manuscripts available to him. And he comes to a place like Acts chapter 8 and verse 37 that clearly teaches that salvation is not by water baptism but by believing on Christ and calling on his name. And so he exercises as he's doing his incredible work to help all of us stupid people. He exercises a principle known in the field of textual criticism as, it, it, it's a big hairy word, it's, don't, don't get scared. It's called conjectural emendation, which means... That if it's apparent to me that something doesn't belong, then I'm going to amend it. I'm going to change it, or I'm going to remove it. And, and so, Acts 8, 37, of course the, the verses weren't you know, numbered at that point, but, but this little portion of the New Testament, it didn't, it didn't line up with what he believed about baptism, and, so, you know, and how it plays out in a person's you know, belief uh, or salvation after and so he comes to this verse and he just amends it just cut it out so that by the time that you, you 
you come to Acts chapter 8, and the Ethiopian eunuch says to Philip as they're you know, cruising along in the chariot, in verse 36, do, do we have that verse? Yeah. In verse 36, as, as they're going along, you know, the Ethiopian eunuch says, oh, okay, you know, so here's water. So why can't I go ahead and just get baptized, man? Okay. Philip says in verse 37, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. <laughs> and he, the Ethiopian eunuch, answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And watch, watch now. Based on that profession of his faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 38 says that Philip commanded the chariot to stand still. They went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. But you see, now, now watch now, by the time Origen emends verse 37 out of the text, it goes from verse 36, hey, here's water, why can't I be baptized, to verse 38, Philip taking him down into the water, listen, without any profession of faith in Christ, and baptizing him. And so old Origen could just sit back and go, that lines up exactly with what I believe. Hold on to that. And same thing happens in 1 John 5, 7. The absolute clearest and most irrefutable place in the New Testament regarding the Trinity. For there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father and the Word. Capital W. Who, who's the Word, y'all? Jesus and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Okay, I've already told you. He didn't believe that. Okay, and since it didn't line up with what he believed about the Trinity, by the time the first textual critic from the most famous Christian university in the world is finished with the passage, what we call 1 John 5, 7 is totally amended out of the text. And let me tell you why that's such an important part of history to know. Listen now, the works of origin got bequeathed given to another scholar who lived in the latter half of the third century. Old Adamantius is going to die, and man, it'd be a shame for all of this work to go to waste. So he gives it to a man by the name of Pamphilus. And then before Pamphilus is about to die, he then bequeaths Origen's work to his star pupil and friend, a man by the name of Eusebius. Eusebius is heralded as the great church historian, okay, but he's significant, okay, because when Constantine comes to power in 313 in, in Rome, and, and he says, hey, Rome and, and this Roman Empire, it's, it's no longer going to be pagan. From here on out, we're going to be Christian." And what he would do, Constantine, would actually form the, the, the structure for the Roman Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire. And so once he deems that Rome, the, the Roman Empire, is going to be Christian, he writes a letter. Hey, you, you guys know any 
pretty scholarly guys that got a lot going on. Oh, there's this dude, Eusebius. Everybody's telling him, Eusebius. So he writes a letter to Eusebius, ordering 50 copies of the New Testament on vellum scrolls. Listen, the letter that he wrote to Eusebius is sitting in the British Museum tonight. Okay, this is not just, you know, you King James people. Okay, and he orders this on 50, uh, 50 copies on vellum scrolls. And the reason he's ordering 50 is he wants to put one of the, these Bibles in all of the capitals throughout the, the Roman Empire. And, and do you understand, though, that ordering them on vellum scrolls, do you understand you would have to have the backing of the Roman government to afford that? And vellum, unlike papyrus that the Bible believers were writing all of these copies on, vellum scrolls to maybe just get in your head is it's almost like a, a thin piece of leather. And they are going to be able to weather the t- time through the centuries. Okay, and obviously... This line of manuscripts is traced back through Rome, back to Alexandria, Egypt, and our infamous first textual critic, Origen. Okay, everybody still here? (laughs) Okay. Even most of these that are written on vellum scrolls are lost, but now listen, lo and behold, in 1481, an incredible discovery is made. What appears to be one of the oldest manuscripts ever discovered on this planet, and guess where they found it, y'all? They found it in the Vatican. (laughs) Does that tell you anything? I'm telling you, I don't need to know anything else. (laughs) And you guys are probably thinking, okay, let's go then. (laughs) Okay, and guess, oh, wow, man. uh, You guys are going to have to listen faster, okay? (laughs) Okay, Okay, they find it in the Vatican, and guess what it's written on? Vellum scrolls. And it's now called Codex Vaticanus. Okay, got that? Then in the mid-1800s, a Bible scholar who hates the Textus Receptus, a man by the name of Tischendorf, he's snooping around in a Roman Catholic monastery that's sitting at the base of Mount Sinai. It's called St. Catherine's. And he's snooping around in there, and he discovers that some of these monks are using some scrap paper for kindling. And when he walks over to find out what, he is, what it is, he discovers that it just happens to be a pile of the oldest manuscripts on the earth. And guess what they happen to be written on? Vellum scrolls. Okay, and let, let, let me tell you what's going to happen because of the discoveries of Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. 
You see, through the influence of the Jesuits in the seminaries and the secular institutions in the, of higher learning, they begin to talk about the need for a revised version of the Bible that would reflect these recent discoveries. Okay, and we also want to update some of that archaic language. Okay, and so on February 20th, 1870, a move was made by Samuel Wilberforce, the Bishop of the Winchester in England, that a revision of the authorized Bible be made. It gets traction with the bigwigs in England, and by the time it was all said and done, what sounded like it was going to be, you know, some simple revisions of the authorized version turned into a production of a completely different Bible that had been translated from a completely different set of manuscripts. Manuscripts that aren't out of Antioch, but manuscripts that you trace back through Rome through the Roman Catholic Church, back to Alexandria, Egypt, so they would reflect the emendations that Origen made. And, and I, I think it's important for us to understand how it happened, okay? And I'm, 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 I'm going to cut as much to the chase as I possibly can. It came because of the influence of two key men, a, a man by the name of Westcott, and a man by the name of Hort. And basically the way that shook down was this, okay? Westcott and Hort produced their own Greek text that had been based out of the manuscripts out of Alexandria, Egypt, and their justification in doing so was this. They invented, grab it now, they invented a philosophy concerning manuscript evidence that had to do with what they called the weight of the manuscripts. And the philosophy was this. The older the manuscript is, the closer it is to the original. And the closer it is to the original, the more accurate it is, and thus the more it actually weighs. You get it? Or the more weight it carries. Okay, so even though we only have a handful of manuscripts from the Alexandrian line, compared to the over 5,000 manuscripts from the Antioch line, or the Textus Receptus, according to Westcott and Hort, the Alexandrian manuscripts weigh more than the others. They carry more weight. And so... When they produced their Greek text, it had 5,788 differences than the Textus Receptus. And you might also want to note that since 1881, it has been their Greek text, the Greek text of Westcott and Hort, or some modification of their Greek text, that has been used to produce the, whatever the number is, the at least 150 English versions on the, uh, of the Bible on the market today. Every one of them come from the Alexandrian line and the manuscripts and the Greek text that was formed by Westcott 
in Hort. The only one on the market is the one you're holding in your hand tonight. Now, there are some versions that claim that they were translated from the same manuscripts as the King James, but uh, when you get into it, what you find, it's got the same trash, the same corrections, the same emendations, and all of that. It's just a marketing tool to sell Bibles to foolish Laodicean believers who don't have a clue about what has happened in history. Okay, you may also want to note that when Bibles are advertised as being translated out of the oldest and best manuscripts, do you, do you already know it's origins manuscripts that they're talking about? Do you understand that it's Roman Catholic manuscripts that they are talking about? And when verses are footnoted saying, this verse is not in the original manuscripts, they're talking about the manuscripts that were doctored by Origen and synthesized by Westcott and Hort. And in my estimation, the plot thickens a little bit when you find out that Westcott and Hort's goal wasn't to make the Bible more readable or understandable. Listen, I, this is their quote. Their goal was to overthrow the Greek text that had been used for the translation of what they called the villainous Textus Receptus. And if you want to get an idea of what kind of men we're talking about here, let me just share really quick, quickly what you, they, they believe. First of all, they believed heaven only existed in the mind of man. They believed it was possible to communicate with the dead and regularly held seances to do just that through a society that they organized that was called the Ghostly Guild. Westcott believed and promoted prayers for the dead. Both Westcott and Hort were merry worshipers, so much so that Westcott, whose wife's name was Sarah, he called her Mary for crying out loud. Hort was an admirer of Darwin and promoted the theory of evolution. And, and listen, we could go on and on and on with all their outlandish and satanic things that these guys were into and believed. But listen, these guys are the major influences on this revision committee, and the crowning work of the committee was called the Revised Version, and it was released in 1881, the New Testament in 1881, the Old Testament in 1885. And listen, if you compared that Bible, the Revised Version, with what that villainous one out of England that had been used for 270 years that had produced, listen y'all, the greatest awakenings, the greatest revivals, the greatest preachers, the greatest preaching, the greatest missionaries, the greatest missionary movements in the history of the church. And that Bible, the revised version, compared to our Bible, the King James, there are 36,191 differences. And the revised version of England in 1881 gave rise to the American standard version in 1901 and from that point forward y'all as we entered into the Laodicean church period the 20th, 20th century became filled with 
various groups and organizations throwing in their hat in the producing the latest and greatest and the best and the most and the closest to the original and all kinds of other Madison Avenue techniques and schemes to sell Bibles, to get money. And that's how we got to where we are. And again, I say to you, every version on the market, except the one we're holding in our hand, comes through all of that trash that we just talked about. And people in Laodicea question the Word of God, don't believe they have the Word of God in their hands, and we're the idiots. <laughs> 